Listener Production. Hey, I'm Matt Dwyer, and welcome to Sleep, where Professor Harriet Hiscock and Associate Professor Emma Berris from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute help you identify sleeping problems in your children from infancy through to secondary school and give you easy-to-understand steps to improve their sleep cycles and overall health. So we're moving from our children being toddlers to now starting primary school. They have a lot more starting to happen in their lives. Harriet, how much sleep do they need? So this, again, will be dependent on the child's age and stage and will change a lot over those first, you know, few years. But certainly you would want a primary school, a preppy to be going to bed by around eight o'clock, maybe a little bit later. They will have dropped their daytime sleeps by now. So it's really important they have a good bedtime routine and get a good sleep overnight. So if they can go to bed at around eight and wake at around, you know, seven, that would be um, fantastic. As So aiming for a good... 11 hours of sleep in those early sort of primary school years. Maybe as they get into grades four, five, six, you might be aiming for more like 10 hours of sleep. But still sleep's really important and they have a lot of activities that can stop that early morning swimming and things like that can start to impact. Yeah, I think it's a developmental period where you do see an increase in in other things that can interfere with sleep. So if it's after school activities, parent work schedules can and sometimes kind of be at play. So, But it is a huge transition starting primary school and there's a lot of new demands in terms of paying attention, learning, remembering things. Um, and so it's it's really important to be getting a good night's sleep to help um, with learning those new academic tasks that the, the kids are facing in the classroom. Yeah, so they're starting to get into a really strict routine with school every day, Monday yep. to Friday. But what about the weekend? Does that throw a spanner in the works of trying that routine out? Look, it can, probably less so than it does in the adolescent. Mm. But my advice to parents would be to try and keep your routine within about an hour of what you normally do. So maybe let them sleep in for another hour, go to bed at maximum an hour later. If you start to do any more than that, they go to bed later, they wake up later Sunday morning, they go to bed late Sunday night, and then you've got problems trying to get them up Monday morning to get them off to school. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that you start to see more at this age group is that irregular sleep-wake cycle um, that can then contribute to the development of sleep problems. So as Harriet said, if it's just, you know, you don't want to be rigid and and doing things, you know, to the minute, within an hour is fine. But when you start to see really big variations, that's when you start to see more sleep difficulties occurring. And when we start preparing them to go to primary school, the toddlers are having those day naps. How do we start I guess, weaning them off that. They usually naturally drop them themselves. By the time, you know, kids start school in Australia, they're usually five, sometimes even a bit older. Maybe they're four and a bit. So they've usually dropped that sleep. Um, Some primary schools will start the first term with Wednesday off to allow the toddler, now the school-aged child, to catch up on their sleep. So that's one way that you can do it. They may need to have a sleep on the weekend, and that's absolutely fine as long as it's not interfering in a major way with going to bed that night. And I was just, I just, I guess, just to expand on that, because it is such a huge transition and um, the young person's probably going to be really tired after a day of school, you might even be doing the bedtime a bit earlier in that first year. So getting them to bed by seven o'clock or even 6.30 in some cases, if they're really exhausted and struggling, um, and that's fine too. 
I suppose with the huge amount of information they're starting to learn now, that focus is so important. What happens when they aren't getting enough sleep here? Yeah, it's... There's lots of research um, looking at this and, and the impacts that lack of sleep has. And and certainly the research shows that if you haven't had a good night's sleep, it is harder to pay attention in the classroom. There's links between poorer sleep and memory consolidation. So being able to, to remember the, the important learnings of the school day and be able to carry those forward in your learning. Also, we see behavioural difficulties too. So children are more likely to be oppositional if they've had um, and not want to do what you say if they've had less sleep, but it can also be connected to, to anxiety and worries too. So I think there's a whole host of things that sleep can influence and and there's really a lot of, of good evidence now that, that there are links between sleep and a number of these things. One of the things I see particularly, in, probably not in prep, but starting in grade one, two, three, is children are very aware of how they're going academically mm. compared to their peers. And there's a particular issue called learning difficulties when a child's got a completely normal IQ, but they struggle with certain aspects of reading or writing or maths. Mm. And that affects about 15% of Australian children. And I start to see those children come with sleeping issues because they're worried about maths or they're worried about seeming dumb in mm-hmm. front of their peers. And then that has a roll-on effect of affecting sleep and self-esteem and learning. So they're not dumb. These kids have got a normal IQ, but they've got specific learning issues. And part of sleep at this age is a bit of a Pandora's box and it's opening up and looking at what else might be going on in that child's life that might be stopping them going to sleep. And we'll probably talk about bullying a bit later on as well, which is another factor that creeps in in this primary school Mm. age group. So what are the early signs of primary school children not getting enough sleep? Well, I think as Emma was saying, it will be pretty obvious that they just can't get to sleep. So they're struggling to get to sleep. It might be that you have to wake them up in the morning. They're not naturally waking up by themselves to start the day and you're trying to get them out of bed. They're cranky. They're oppositional. Um, they, you might get a phone call from the teacher saying they're falling asleep in class or certainly if they fall asleep on the way home in the car or on the bus or in front of the television when they get home, that's definitely a sign that they're not getting enough sleep. And what sort of goals should we set for them? Well, I think we, it's all about, um, you know, the routine as well for these kids and expectations of, you know, you still do need to go to bed at a certain time. You still need to have your bedroom free of media. So social media is creeping in now. There's, you know, a large proportion of primary school kids have their own phone, particularly as parents upgrade their own and they hand their smartphone That's off crazy. to their child. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, and all the social media creeps in, you know, the Snapchat, the Instagram, and you'll hear your kid's phone going at, you know, midnight. 1am, 2am with people um, communicating. So those phones have to be out of the room, preferably somewhere like the kitchen, you know, out of reach if that's an issue for your child. So I think setting those expectations really early on is is important that, you know, we're still going to have a sleep routine, a bedtime routine. Um, we're going to keep the bedroom media free and that's, that's us as well as mum and dad. We're going to keep the phones out of our room as well. So you have to lead by example as a parent. I think that's a really important point because kids are really savvy. And so <laughs> if they're seeing you use your phone all the time, it, it they can start to communicate the sense of injustice with that and yeah. be like, well, why can you do it? And, and and I can't do it and so on. And I think, I think in addition to some of the social media things, I think in terms of electronics at this point, you also see increases in things like gaming. And a lot of that can be 
can become highly addictive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so negotiating that and having set rules around electronics use in general yeah. is really important at this mm. age. Yeah, age. I've just returned from a big um, paediatric meeting in Baltimore and they've they're studying 12,009 to 10-year-olds, all sorts of things, including their use of devices and they're doing brain scans as well. And um, what they've found is girls, not surprisingly, are more likely to be on social media than boys, but that's actually associated positively with more extracurricular activities like dance and Mm. um, sport and things, whereas boys of this age are more likely to be on gaming Mm. activities, no surprise, compared to girls, but that's associated with less extracurricular activities. Because they're staying in. Exactly, Mm. exactly. Mm. So I think it's a whole wealth of information out there about screens and social media, but what is your your child using, how is it, how are they using it and when, and just making the bedroom a, a, a media-free zone, you know, after about 6pm probably, I think. What are some of the other bigger causes of sleep problems in primary school children? Yeah, look, I think there are other things that can start to creep into. I think I think the first thing is that there's no one cause. So there's, there's a number of different factors that can contribute. So some of the ones we've talked about so far have been having irregular kind of sleep-wake cycles, excessive use of media and and screens. But I think you also see changes in things like caffeine use, for example. So that's something that we see an increase of in primary school age children. So that's something we want to check and monitor to make sure that they're not having too much caffeine that could be influencing their sleep. Yeah, and I think otherwise the problems are similar to that that happen in preschoolers. So the, the sleep association problems where they can only fall asleep if mum or dad are lying with them. That's still a problem. And the limit setting disorder, you know, coming in and out of the bedroom (laughs) multiple times is still a problem in some primary school kids. Mm. When they're, I guess, worried about the maths and English. Yes. Do they also worry about if they are bedwetting? Yeah, so bedwetting is another one, Matt, spot on. We always keep thinking about the behavioural things, but bedwetting is very common and tends to run in families. And certainly up to the age of six, we say it's normal don't worry about it. But from six years of age and onwards, um, you can definitely do something about it, which has got a high success rate. And and that's using a pad and alarm, which we can talk about in the next Mm. episode. And bedwetting does tend to, you know, slowly get better over time. But if there's been a family history of it, you know, you can have the seven or eight year old who bedwets and they're about to go on school camp and they get quite upset about that. But there's good um, medical treatments Mm. for that. I suppose that would, it would cause a stress on them yep. knowing that they're probably going to wet the yep. bed. Yeah, and sleepovers and all of that. But mm. from six years on, there's really good strategies we have for that. So another issue that happens once kids start school is the extracurricular activities and particularly the early morning ones, which are often swimming for some reason um, and rowing for some kids. That can be really tricky and Often, you know, children do handle it well. They just get incredibly organised. They do their morning activity, which is good for their health and fitness. Um, They have a day of school. uh, They try and do homework during the school hours where possible. And then they try and do a minimal amount of homework at home and then get to sleep early. They just have to to survive those early morning um, activities. Then you have the other end of the day where they might have training, you know, three nights a week or other activities. So I guess it's really just trying to keep the routine routine going and you may need to sort of condense your routine. So as soon as they come home, get them to have a shower, get the dinner on, get them, you know, into their 
pyjamas, books, bed, you might just need to shorten it all while they're going through that. But I would caution against doing too many extracurricular activities, particularly if your child is tired and can't get themselves up in the morning, is getting cranky, getting upset. And my rule of thumb is a maximum of two extracurricular activities per child at any one time. But that's not from any evidence. That's just from my experience of seeing, you know, hundreds and hundreds of families dealing with this issue. Yeah. I guess afternoon sports, you know, going to play footy, cricket, soccer, dancing. Great. Is that a benefit in terms of it makes them a little bit tired? Well, there actually is some evidence that if you do um, vigorous activity, not right before sleep, but in the afternoon before the night time, that that will lead to a better onset of sleep. So, and better quality of sleep. So that's some work done out of Victoria that has shown that. Yeah. So the other issue that's coming more and more a problem in our society and across the developed world is obesity. In Australia, we have 20% of our kids who are overweight and a further 5% are obese, and this is rising. And what we do know is short sleep duration. So continued short sleep duration is associated with overweight and obesity in children as well as in adults. And there's a number of reasons why this might be, and it's probably not just one, it's it's all of these reasons. One is if you are not sleeping as much, you've got more time awake to be eating. If you're not sleeping as much, you might be feeling that you lack energy and you're a bit lethargic, so you, you exercise less. And the third reason is um, there's a particular hormone called ghrelin that is produced in our brains overnight and leptin as well. So leptin is produced more overnight and that suppresses our appetite, whereas ghrelin is produced and that increases our appetite. So if you have a short amount of sleep, you get um, more of the ghrelin and less of the leptin being produced and that makes you you want to eat more. And then the other reason may be that um, if as a parent you find it a little tricky to set limits around your child's sleep and routines, you might also find it tricky to set limits around their um, eating as well and how much they're eating and what they're eating. How do we know that they are getting enough sleep? Well, they'll wake up by themselves in the morning. Usually that's, and they'll wake up happy. So usually that's a really good indicator and they'll stay awake for the day. They won't fall asleep in class or in the car on the way home. They won't fall asleep in front of the television at four in the afternoon. That's when you know they're getting <laughs> enough sleep. Yeah. Yep. With their healthy sleep cycles, how much deep sleep do they actually get at this age? Yeah, look, it's, it's just a gradual progression. So they are getting more deep sleep, less of the light sleep, and their sleep cycles are starting to lengthen again now, you know, 50, maybe 60 minutes of sleep cycle, working up to the adult sleep cycle duration of 90 minutes. On and off. On and off, yep. yep. So the same thing, going through episodes of deep and light sleep with usually the first three or four hours of the night being deep, deep sleep um, before they come up into those cycles of deep and light sleep. Hmm. Yep. And I think with just on the note of sleep cycles, um, and we raised the common sleep problem that you can see before about needing a parent present to fall asleep at night, is that we see that there's a need for the environment to be very similar to overnight to the way the environment was at sleep onset. So, for example, if at sleep onset a parent is needed in the room to fall asleep at night and when the child comes out of that first sleep cycle, the parent isn't there anymore, that's when you can see night waking occurring and the, the child seeking out the parent in the night time. Yeah, and at this age group, they'll come into your bedroom yep. because they can. And some parents will say, I wake up in the morning and I didn't even realise they'd come out mm. in the middle of the night. Or they come out in the middle of the night, they take over the bed, so my partner has to get out and go and sleep on the lounge. 
That's pretty common. <laughs> Sorry. Are nightmares and night terrors still prevalent? Yeah, in the early years of primary school they are. They start to um, level off a bit in, you know, sort of four, five and six. But, yeah, they certainly still get nightmares and night terrors, particularly if they're overtired or if they've got a, you know, a viral illness or something else going on to make them have a fever and get a bit sick. What about some of the biggest misconceptions with sleeping here? Hmm, that's an interesting one. Uh, I think I think sleep problems are really common too in this age group, and so I think that's important um, to note. And I think you know we did a, a, a research project where we looked at how persistent sleep problems were from primary school to adolescence. So we assessed for sleep problems across five points in time. This is a big study of 4,000 kids in Australia. And what we were able to show there is that sleep problems really do persist. Um, So if you have a a sleep problem when you're uh, four years of age, um, that was highly associated with continuing to have a sleep problem into adolescence. Mm. And the other thing that was interesting about that study is that we were trying to understand the relationship between having a sleep problem and having behavioural difficulties and anxiety and depressive symptoms. And we found what we'd say is a bi-directional relationship. So we found that if you have some levels of anxiety, that that's going to increase your risk for sleep problems. But we also found that if you have sleep problems, that that then increases your risk for anxiety. So really showing the need to kind of think about each individually, but knowing if they both come together, it just makes things worse. How do we identify that anxiety early and what are the steps to managing that and preventing that and fixing it? Yeah, there are a number of uh, different causes of anxiety in this this age group. So we still, there are some primary school age children that still have some of those nighttime fears where they might be scared of, uh, you know, imaginary things. But I think with the increasing cognitive development, you can also see more worries about real life things like, you know, having a burglar uh, come into your house, for example. And I guess when there are those more um, typical nighttime fears, using a lot of the same strategies that we've talked about previously can be helpful, like communicating and reassuring them about the safety. You can start to do some more creative things, I guess, with worries too. Like you can start to um, like have a worry box, for example, where you might kind of draw a picture of the thing that is making you worried and you can kind of like put it away, file it away into that little box for the day, or you can scrunch up the piece of paper and throw it away in a bin or or things like that. So you can start to get more creative um, with the way that you manage anxiety in this group. But when we're managing those kinds of worries, we can start to also use other techniques like breathing strategies. So um, slow breathing strategies just to calm the body down and help the kids to get kind of ready and, and relaxed for sleep. But we can also start to use strategies like relax, more formal relaxation where you combine breathing with a strategy that we call um, progressive muscle relaxation relaxation where you tense up the different parts of your body and then you release them. And so you kind of go through it sequentially throughout your body, but it helps you to to notice the differences between being in a tense state and a relaxed state. And you can combine some of that with visual imagery. So imagining being in um, your favourite place. So it might be in your grandparents' back garden or it could be on a beach or, you know, wherever that might be. And you can start to use some of that imagination with some of those relaxation 
techniques too. Yeah, and I certainly use that a lot with the school kids I see and um, I will tell them to, when they get home from school, to go and close their bedroom door, lie on the bedroom floor, take off their shoes and do this visual imagery and sequential muscle relaxation starting with their toes and, and moving up. And the reason I tell them to do it then is that if I tell them to do it before bed and it doesn't work, then they get more anxious. Mm. Whereas if I tell them to do it after school, they just naturally start to do it before bedtime anyway, but without that expectation. So I always tell parents, you know, don't tell them to do it right before bed in case it doesn't work and they get more stressed, but tell them to do it when they get home from school and and shut the your brothers and sisters out and lie on the bedroom floor, close your eyes and do it. It kind of sounds like meditation. Is that something that you would introduce? Yeah, look, it is really similar to um, some strategies you might consider under the umbrella of mindfulness and and those um, mindful techniques are, are really popular at the moment. So there are some people that I know that use um, apps to help facilitate some of that. So Smiling Mind is an example of, a, of an app that um, helps to guide you through some more of these kind of meditation-based techniques, um, which heaps of people seem to be using. I don't know if you yeah. much to say about that, Harriet. Look, I think the Smiling Mind has done some evaluation in school-aged children and found it to be beneficial to them their um, mental health and behaviour in the classroom as well as um, outside the classroom. And I think it's a great inexpensive, you know, way of trying to um, tackle these things. Um, So I think that's a great start. But I think you, as Emma has sort of talked about, you need to have a conversation with your child as to anything that might be making them upset, whether that's learning issues, bullying, peer group issues. And sometimes I draw a single line on a page and I do a sad face down one end of the line and a happy face up the other end. And I say, this is school where 10 out of 10 is school is so fantastic. You want to be there Saturday and Sunday, or this is the other end at zero out of 10. It's awful. You hate it. You never want to be there. And I ask the kids to put a, a cross on that line of how happy they are at school. And that can pretty much tell me straight away, is it a school issue or not? And then I give them three wishes to make school better. And so if they say, oh, more playtime, more time on the computer, that's pretty normal. (laughs) But if they say, I want so-and-so to stop being mean to me or I wish I wasn't so dumb in maths, then you've got a really clear answer of what might be contributing to the anxiety and then you've got to go and meet with the school and talk about those things and start to help your child. Seek professional help at that stage? Yes, but the first stop is really going to the school if it's a school-based issue, um, particularly if it's a learning or academic issue and saying, you know, my kid is not sleeping at night because of this. Um, What can we do about it? What resources do you have? How can we work together? Yeah, I think that's that's really important to have those conversations. And I think thinking about when you have those conversations with your yes. child is important too. Um, so a lot of the families that we see in clinic are, are doing a really great job at having these discussions with their kids, but they're doing it right as the child's going to bed. Mm. And and so when you start to talk about some of this stuff and it's, it gets really deep and it's it can be upsetting for the child, it can just delay sleep onset too. So finding a time during the day that isn't just right before sleep to yep. have these important yeah. Because I often say, tell me about your day, and then the kid starts crying, it's and that's all comes not out. helpful. <laughs> yeah. So, Emma, what if you've got an anxious child and you've got them off to sleep at the start of the night? What if they wake up overnight and come into your bedroom and want to hop into bed with you? Yeah. Mm. So I think 
I think it depends on how far in your journey of implementing the strategies you are. So if, you, if it's the first kind of week or so, I recommend that families just try to work on sleep onset to start with. So just focus on getting the child to bed at night and don't even worry about what happens overnight because it's really hard to be implementing strategies in the night and at sleep onset. So so I'd say just stick with that. And, and what you generally see is that if you get improvement at sleep onset, you see the improvements overnight. And that relates to that idea that we talked about before around the conditions of um, your bedroom environment and the way that you fall asleep. So once you learn how to fall asleep at night, you usually can start to, to start to implement that for yourself overnight when you wake up um, very briefly from your sleep cycles. But for some kids, even though you've been doing that and they can start to get off to sleep okay at night time, they still might wake up in the night. So I guess it depends on what you want to do. You could return the child back to bed and try the same strategies um, overnight, or, you know, that can be really exhausting. So you could even just set up a, a little camp mattress next to your bed. And, and if they kind of come into your room, the rule could be that they can come in, but they go onto that mattress. So at least your sleep isn't getting disturbed. Mm-hmm. What about managing some of the other bigger problems like what do we have, like bedwetting? Yeah, so bedwetting is a really common issue um, in primary school aged children and it tends to run in families as well. So if your child gets the age of six and they're still bedwetting, then it's time to do something about it and that's where the evidence comes in that we know we can. And the most um, useful thing is something called a, a pad and alarm. So basically it's a little pad that goes on the child's bed, underneath the bed clothes or underneath a a towel even, and it's set up to an alarm and it triggers when there's moisture onto the pad. So once the child starts to wet, then the alarm goes off. It's a really loud alarm. (laughs) It can wake up the whole family. Um, But what it does is it rouses that child from their deep sleep and what you need to do as the parent is go in, wake up your child completely. They need to turn off the alarm, the child themselves. Then they need to go to the bathroom finish doing their wee completely, come back to bed, fresh, you know, pyjama bottoms if they need it and reset the alarm. And so this is a process that takes four to six weeks to work. And typically what we do towards if they're getting three or four or five dry nights in a row, then we might get them to drink a bit more fluid in the evening and keep using the alarm. And usually after six weeks, there's about a 70 to 80% success rate with the pad and alarm. So it's just training the brain to wake up from sleep to be able to go to the bathroom. And usually these kids are otherwise well. You, you must get them checked out by your doctor first just to make sure there's no underlying rare neurological problem causing this or a urine infection causing the bedwetting. But normally it's just it's something just tends to run in the family. Sometimes children will be going on a school camp or having a sleepover and again, speak to your doctor, but there are special sprays or um, little wafers you can put under your tongue to help just turn off the... Um, hormone that makes you do wee and um, it keeps you dry for the night as well with that. So that's something you need to speak to your doctor about prescribing. At this age group, we also see um, difficulties with limit setting. So where the child is basically refusing to go to sleep at the time that the parents are wanting them to go to sleep. I guess in terms of managing this, the the first thing is having really clear rules and boundaries around bedtime. So having that kind of clear bedtime that's set and that will depend on the time that the child needs to wake up in the next morning, but having that clear bedtime. 
and having a set routine around that. Um, so being really firm with that. But one of the things that we can see because the, the child ends up getting used to falling asleep much later. So if their desired bedtime is eight, they're doing these curtain calls, they might not actually be falling asleep until about 10 o'clock at night. And so their body has become used to falling asleep later. So to try to make some changes here, we use a strategy called bedtime fading. And that's where we put children to bed temporarily later, um, that's closer to their naturally um, occurring sleep onset. And then we slowly bring the bedtime forward. Um, because once you're used to falling asleep at 10 o'clock and you try to go to sleep at eight o'clock, it's just impossible. Mm. Um, so we temporarily put the child to bed at 10 o'clock. Once they're falling asleep within about 20 minutes, the next night we'd advance it to you know 9.45, another couple of nights, advance it to 9.30 and so on until you you get back to the desired bedtime. Mm -hmm. But often that strategy is needed to get the kids sleepy enough to be able to engage in the strategies because if they go to bed not sleepy, then they're more likely to call out and and protest. Yeah, and I think that works really well even with kids with mild anxiety who are not falling asleep because they're just worrying about things. But if they always fall asleep at 10 o'clock at night, do exactly as Emma said, do the bedtime fading for a two-week period in conjunction with your relaxation strategies or your, um, you know, your worry box or other strategies, and that can really help as well. Mm. Yeah. What about just before setting them to bed at 10 p.m.? Are there things that we need to make sure we do and don't do? Yes. So it's really important to think ahead of time what those activities are going to be, and they have to all be quiet activities without screens, um, because if the child's just, you know watching TV up until that time, then that might have influence and impact on whether they can fall asleep at night. So doing, you know, reading, colouring in, puzzles, something kind of low key with the family is really important. And to think about that ahead of time, Mm -hmm. what that will be. And I think just for children's anxiety, there's a, there's a, in primary school, there's an excellent book called What to Do When You Worry Too Much, A Kid's Guide to Anxiety by Dawn Huber. And it's a parent-child sort of how do we do this? How? What is anxiety? What are some strategies? How do we manage it? So it's not specifically for sleep. It's just for the anxious child generally. And it's a workbook that with pictures and drawing and activities. And it's really powerful from about six years to 12 years of age. It's really useful. So when you're implementing uh, new behavioural strategies and uh, behavioural program um, around sleep, it's really important to know that you uh, you may come across something called an extinction burst. And, and this happens in about 20% of cases where you see a return of the old behaviour come back and it can sometimes be even more intense and severe than, than you first had experienced. Um, so for example, if it's around uh, you're doing strategies about limit setting and, and keeping the child in the, in the bedroom at night time, Um, after a couple of weeks of success, you can see the child kind of revert back to refusing to go to sleep, not wanting to go to sleep and and so on. And so the the most important thing is for parents to know that that could happen. And if it does happen, all parents need to do is use the exact same consistent strategies that they've been using and that will go away. Yeah. And it usually goes away about three nights later, but I think it's very important because parents think, oh my God, we're back to square one. Why did I do that? Nothing's worked. But actually it's worked really well. Mm. Your child is now just testing the limits again for a few nights and you just need to be firm for a few nights and they go back to their good sleep habits. Sleep was presented by Harriet Hiscock and Emma Shabaris and produced by me, Matt Dwyer. Audio production done by Darcy Thompson and our executive producer is Jen Goggin. 
Kuchner.